podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Michael Fox. Dr. Fox is both a neurologist and neuroscientist at Harvard Medical School, where he is the director for the Center for Brain Circuit Therapeutics. His research focuses on new and improved treatments for diseases of the brain, and his research group uses everything from brain network imaging tools to study brain connectivity to technologies like deep brain stimulation and transcranial magnetic stimulation in order to functionally alter the brains of patients. His medical practice focuses a lot on Parkinson's disease, but we spent a lot of our time discussing a recent interdisciplinary study he co-authored, which mapped out an addiction remission network in the human brain. In other words, his team mapped out a set of interconnected brain regions that seem to be strongly linked to addiction. So when nicotine-addicted patients actually experience natural lesions to different parts of this network from strokes, their addiction can be reduced or even cured. So we talked a lot about that study and a little bit about the brain stimulation and other technologies. We touched on Parkinson's disease a little bit towards the end. So if you're interested in addiction and the human brain and the types of brain networks and brain regions that are involved in those things, this will be an interesting episode for you. As always, if you enjoy the content of this podcast, please like, share, and subscribe wherever you're listening or watching. If you are on the YouTube channel watching the video version, please like and comment on the videos and subscribe to the channel. And if you want to stay up to date on what episodes are coming up on the podcast, who I'm going to be talking to and what we're going to be talking about, as well as other interesting content and research linked to the topics I discuss on the show, check out mindandmatter.substack.com. I have a free weekly newsletter you can subscribe to, and every week you'll get a short email from me that touches on all of those things. This episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form and you can mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mindandmatter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure. And vitamin D is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. Today's show is brought to you in part by Dosist, an all-natural cannabis company specializing in dose-controlled cannabis products made with plant-based ingredients. To learn more about Dosist, their products, and where they are available, please visit their website through the link in the episode description. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Michael Fox. Dr. Michael Fox, thank you for joining me. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Can you start off by just telling everyone who you are and what kind of research you do? Sure. My name is uh, Michael Fox. I'm a uh, neurologist at uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital, Harvard Medical School. I, uh, I'm the director of the Center for Brain Circuit Therapeutics, 
Um, we uh, focus on identifying therapeutic targets and administering uh, neuromodulation treatments, things like deep brain stimulation and transcranial magnetic stimulation. Yeah, I want to get into some of that stuff for folks who don't know what those techniques are. So can you just start by taking them one at a time? What is deep brain stimulation and what are researchers and doctors using it for? Yeah, so, so I guess starting with that therapy. So deep brain stimulation is a, um, a treatment where a surgeon implants uh, electrodes deep in the brain. There's then a wire that, that connects those electrodes to a battery pack in the chest. Um, and you can turn on those electrodes and, and use them to modulate the activity within specific brain circuits. And it's used uh, to treat certain symptoms, especially movement disorders. Um, so it's very effective at suppressing tremor. Um, it's very effective in improving most of the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. Hmm. Um, and then rarely it can also be used to treat things like obsessive compulsive disorder um, or, or dystonia. So, so literally a electrode, a piece of metal is physically put deep in the brain and you send electrical current into the brain. And this, for some reason, happens to help with things like Parkinson's disease. Uh, correct. And it's, uh, it's actually one of the most dramatic treatments that I've ever seen. Um, you know, for a lot of brain diseases, we, we don't have dramatic treatments. Um, deep brain stimulation is the exception. Um, you can literally flip a switch and see someone's tremor stop. How was that even discovered? Yeah, well, for the most part, trial and error and serendipity. Um, you know, patients with really severe Parkinson's tremor, for example, it's a, it's a rest tremor. Um, so they, they have horrible tremor just when they're sitting there watching TV, and it can be quite severe. And to the point where uh, early on, a surgeon would go through and lesion different parts of the nervous system, starting with the nerves that went from the spinal cord to the arm, just to try and stop the tremor. Now, obviously, if you sever the nerves that go from the spinal cord to the arm, you stop the tremor, but you also stop every nervous impulse to the arm, and then people uh, uh, have a paralyzed arm. And so that started this trial and error process of, you know, lesioning different parts of the nervous system to try and make the tremor stop. And, and many of these lesions made the tremor stop, but left patients paralyzed. And eventually they found places in the, in the brain, again, through trial and error and serendipity, that when lesioned would stop the tremor, but not cause the arm to be paralyzed. Hmm. And so there's, that's a, that's a dramatic, but, but also invasive uh, way to treat something like tremor. There's also this technique called transcranial magnetic stimulation. How does that work? And, and when did that start to get used? Yeah. So that's a, a non-invasive form of stimulation. It's a uh, electromagnet that you hold up to the side of someone's head. So outside their scalp, um, you discharge this electromagnet very rapidly. And that change that creates a rapidly changing magnetic field. Um, and if you remember any old high school physics, anytime you have a wire sitting in a changing magnetic field, it'll actually induce an electric current in the underlying wire. In the case of TMS for, for treating neurological or psychiatric conditions, the underlying wire is actually your brain cells. So as you discharge this magnet over and over again, you can modulate activity in different brain circuits. So, so just like DBS, you can modulate the activity in brain circuits. But with TMS, you do it non-invasively with an electromagnet outside of the scalp. Um, and the primary clinical use is, is depression, although it has other FDA-approved indications as well, such as obsessive compulsive disorder and actually smoking addiction. Hmm. And so with something like TMS, 
are the functional effects, are they happening in real time in the moment while you're doing this TMS stimulation? And do they actually outlast the treatment itself? Uh, so the answer to both is yes. So, so in real time, you are modulating the activity of these brain circuits. But when you do this day after day, and we actually do it for about six weeks, um, it creates a change in depression that can last years after the end of the stimulation. Um, so you can think of it as a circuit reset. You're, you're helping pop people out of depression. And then that benefit can last well past the duration of the stimulation itself. Interesting. Yeah. So, you know, we're going to talk about brain damage, brain lesions. And typically when we think about having damage to some part of the brain, we think about that causing a deficit. But in the case of deep brain stimulation, um, and some of those early interventions for Parkinson's in the case of some of the stuff that we're going to talk about for addiction, there are examples of people who have brain damage that actually helps them in some way. And I'm hoping you can paint a picture for us of sort of what we knew before your recent study around lesions to different parts of the brain and how they impact things like addiction. Yeah. So, so as you mentioned, generally getting a stroke or damage to a focal part of the brain is not a good thing. Um, and, and most strokes will, will cause negative symptoms, things like a paralyzed arm or inability to speak or depression. Um, but there are certain cases where a lesion leads to functional benefit. Um, and so I, I gave you an example of tremor earlier, and that was probably one of the most obvious examples where there are patients that had really bad tremor, had an incidental stroke, and the tremor got better. Um, without leaving them totally paralyzed. And so they got functional benefit from that lesion in the sense that the tremor improved. Um, and again, those cases are telling us something really important about where our therapeutic target is um, and where we should intervene in other patients to stop their tremor. And the same thing is true in addiction. So for a long time, um, ever since at least the late 90s, people have noticed that there are patients that are addicted, usually to cigarette smoking, because that's the big, a big risk factor for stroke. They have a stroke and then they're in the hospital and they lost all craving for cigarettes. So it's not just that they stopped smoking, but they immediately had no interest in smoking, no withdrawal symptoms. They basically lost their addiction. Hmm. And so some early studies looked at these cases and said, hey, these are really, really important cases. They're telling us something important about where we need to intervene to help addiction in other patients. And these early studies found that there was a statistical association with a brain region called the insula. Um, if you had a stroke to the insula, you were more likely to lose your addiction um, than people that did not have a stroke to the insula. Um, and so that set forth this focus on the insula as a therapeutic target for addiction. And in fact, the FDA approved TMS device that targets cigarette smoking and, and addiction was designed to try and stimulate the insula um, based on these early studies. The problem is, as is, is time went on and people tried to replicate this very exciting observation, um, they found that it didn't always line up, um, that most of the lesions that got rid of addiction didn't hit the insula. And most of the lesions that hit the insula didn't get rid of addiction. Mm. And so while there was a statistical association there, we clearly were missing something, um, that it wasn't just all about the insula. And so that's what, that's what we set out to try and investigate. I see. So, so people were having strokes and things. In some cases, they had damage to this brain area called the insula, and their addiction was basically completely cured. 
But in other cases, you got similar effects with lesions to other places. And in other cases, still, you would have lesions to the insula that did not lead to that effect. So there, there was some kind of incomplete picture there. And that's where you guys pick things up. Before we get to your study, can you talk a little bit more about the insula? Where, where in the skull is it located? And what do we already know about the types of things it tends to be involved in? Yeah, so it's a it's a very deep region in the brain. Kind of, um, uh, I know we have audio listeners listeners here. So if you go maybe a couple inches in front of your ear, and then you were going to go straight in a few inches, you get to an area called the insula. Um, so it's it's not on the surface of the brain. It's a little bit deep, um, which means it's hard to reach with a a transcranial magnetic stimulation coil because it's deep in the brain. Um, this is a part of the brain that does a lot of different things. Um, involved in different types of body sensations, for example. Um, and it integrates, you know, um, body information, uh, cognitive control, uh, you know, pain sensations. And so the insula does a lot of different things, um, but it does a lot of things that people have thought play a role in addiction. I see. And I often hear the insula mentioned with a term called interoception, the idea being that if the normal senses we think about, like seeing things with your eyes is exteroception, detecting things outside the body. The insula is sort of doing a sensory integration or sensory detection function for the insides of our bodies, like what's going on in the body and in our viscera and things like that. Is that the way that people often think about it? Correct. That's one, one of its many roles. And were there any other brain regions that were sort of... Uh, uh, top candidates or regions that you expected might also be involved in addiction that we might want to orient people towards before we dig into the study? Yeah. So, so the insula was the number one region that came out of the stroke literature mm -hmm. right, of, of lesions that hit the insula versus don't hit the insula. However, there are many, many other regions that either come out of animal research or functional neuroimaging studies of addiction, or in the case of, of my field, um, uh, lesioning or brain stimulation interventions. And so actually there have been lesion trials for patients with addiction um, to the anterior cingulate. Uh, so it's a, a procedure called cingulotomy. Um, and this is a procedure that people have used for depression. They've used it for pain. And actually what they noticed is some of the patients where they did a cingulotomy for pain, they also lost their addiction to the pain medications that they were on. Mm. Um, and so the, the anterior cingulate or the idea that you could lesion the anterior cingulate to improve addiction um, had led to some controversial trials where they had taken people with addiction, lesion the anterior cingulate to try and improve it. And the, these published trials reported some evidence of efficacy, but there were a lot of questions around um, both, you know, did they analyze the data correctly? Did they really hit their endpoint? And then ethical questions about you know, this is a very vulnerable patient population. Is it okay to be, be lesioning them uh, to try and help their addiction? Uh, there's also been a number of different trials of different brain stimulation treatments um, targeting lots of different regions. Um, so there's trials that have targeted the, the front of the brain, the medial prefrontal cortex or the frontal polar cortex. There's trials that have targeted the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex up on the top of the brain. And then there've been DBS trials, um, you know, deep brain stimulation to the nucleus accumbens, for example. Um, and so I'm giving you a flavor of all the different regions um, because that's kind of the state of the field where, mm -hmm. where everybody based on their evidence, their field, their type of brain stimulation, how they looked at the problem, they would identify a different region, a different target, a different spot to go after. 
And again, there's signal there. You know, some of these trials were showing signals of efficacy. We have an FDA approved treatment um, for cigarette addiction with a, a TMS coil, but it was really unclear what we're actually targeting or what the therapeutic target uh, is. I see. And, you know, I think probably everyone understands at this point, at least qualitatively, how big and how, how much the problem of addiction is growing, especially in recent years. Can you put a little bit more meat on that for us? How, how big is that problem currently and what's the traje- trajectory that we're on? Yeah, so I don't, I don't think I can do it justice. So I want to make sure I give you my full disclosure, which I am not an addiction specialist. Um, we, we did have multiple addiction specialists on the paper, um, including Nora Volkow um, and, and Khalid Masawi. Um, but I'm a Parkinson's doctor. Um, I also do TMS for depression. Uh, we developed tools and techniques that we thought would be useful for studying addiction. But as far as the clinical problem of addiction, I'd just be quoting the New York Times papers, uh, you know, articles kind of describing how big of an issue it is and, and how more of an issue it's become during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's suffice to say that it is a, a major, major problem. I think everybody agrees on that. And it's an increasing problem with um, addiction going up and uh, with overdose death rates going up. Can you start describing for everyone at a very high level what the basic design of your study was and, and how you guys went about conducting it? Yeah, so we, we started with these data sets that I told you about earlier. Um, and in fact, we resurrected the original data sets that led to that insula observation. Um, so, so Aaron Bowes, one of my close collaborators at Iowa, um, had the original data set that led to that first insula observation. And so he, he revitalized the data set, but, but analyzed it in a much, much um, uh, more careful way where, where he actually outlined the exact location of every lesion from that original addiction study. So, so that was data set one, where we had an outline of the exact lesion locations that either led to addiction remission or led to people you know, continuing to smoke. Uh, we then identified a second data set from Rochester um, where that was one of the trials where they had sought to replicate this original Iowa finding. And again, another data set of exact lesion locations all outlined in, in um, Atlas space. They either led to addiction remission or led to people continuing to keep smoking. And we said, okay, we've got two very valuable data sets here. One of them identified the insula, although even in that original data set, most of the lesions that led to addiction remission were not in the insula. And then we had a second data set that failed to replicate the insula finding. We said, okay, if we can make these two data sets line up, then we know we're on to something. And so we did something um, called lesion network mapping. And, and this is a, a technique that was developed by Aaron Bose, um, now at Iowa and, and others, um, to look at not just where the lesion is located, but to look at what brain circuit the lesion is intersecting. And so we turn to a wiring diagram of the human brain called the human connectome. You can think of this as an atlas of how every brain region is is connected to every other brain region. And it's this really, really unique resource that for the first time, we can say not just where is the lesion, but what is the lesion connected to? What brain circuit is that lesion hitting? And so we can turn to these lesion data sets and then ask, okay, are all the lesions that led to addiction remission, are, all the, are they all hitting one specific brain circuit that the lesions that don't lead to addiction remission are avoiding? And, and sure enough, we, sat, we found a circuit in data set one, we found the same circuit in data set two. 
Okay. So, so part of what I'm hearing here is you had, on the one hand, you had a, you had a kind of a, a puzzle. You had this data set. This data set is some brain anatomy data from human patients, some of whom had addiction to certain substances, and they had lesions to different parts of the brain. Sometimes those lesions were associated with remission from their addiction. Sometimes it wasn't, but it's not like everyone that, that got over their addiction had the same lesion in the same location. So they all had like different lesions in different locations, and it was a bit of a mystery what was going on. And from what you were saying, it sounds like you know one piece of the puzzle is it's not enough just to know the sort of basic location of a lesion because one brain region might have multiple circuits inside of it that go to and from different locations in the brain. So there's a sort of really complicated map that you have to parse by comparing all of these people. And you use this thing called the human connectome to help do that. And that's just sort of an atlas that tells you where all of the where all of the roads are connecting all of the different circuits and, and different subregions of these patients. Yep. No, that's exactly right. It's uh, if you want to fix a stereo receiver, the first thing you do is you pull out the wiring diagram and mm -hmm. then you can figure out where the problem is coming from. Um, but if you don't have that wiring diagram, it's very hard to make sense of where the, where the problem or, or the symptom or the change in behavior is coming from. Yeah. And I suppose that, you know, because this wiring diagram is of the brain and it's so complex and there's so many networks and circuits, there's a lot of different ways to cause the same kind of deficit. So there's a lot of different ways you could probably cure someone's um, addiction by, by lesioning different, different circuits going to different places, perhaps. Well, that, that was the hypothesis, right? Is, is all we knew is that there was a mystery, as you articulated very nicely, that there were lesions in different locations causing the same behavioral effect. And so the hypothesis was maybe they're all hitting the same brain circuit. I see. Um, and so that's the hypothesis we tested because it, it, it didn't have to be that way. It could have been mm -hmm. each one of these lesions was in a different region and each one of these lesions was hitting a completely different circuit. There might be multiple different ways to get rid of an addiction. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was the, the, the thing that the question that we wanted to answer is, are they actually hitting one consistent circuit? You know, are these lesions all connected to a consistent set of regions or are they all doing different things, hitting different circuits? Mm -hmm. And for the patient population that you guys had uh, data from, were these patients all addicted to the same substance or was it different substances? Yeah. So the, the first two data sets that I described, every single patient uh, was addicted to cigarette smoking. Um, at the time they were enrolled in the study. So, so every single patient, you know, to be enrolled in the study, you had to be addicted to cigarettes and then you had to have a stroke. And then some of those patients, their addiction disappeared. Some of those patients failed to quit smoking and kept smoking. And then there was also a middle group of people that they quit smoking, but they did it because their doctor told them to not because they suddenly lost their addiction. Mm. And, you know, when you, when you compared, when you did your study and, and you got into the weeds, what was the sort of basic overarching finding that you came to? Yeah. So the answer to the question that you articulated earlier is that yes, these different lesions in different locations did hit one common brain circuit, hmm. that there was a set of connections that were common to all these different lesions in different locations that got rid of addiction that were different than the lesions that did not get rid of addiction. I see. So some people lost their addiction. And even though there was heterogeneity in the location of the legions, you were nonetheless able to find like a common core set of circuits that touched uh, most or all of the patients who actually went into remission. I, uh, correct. Pretty, pretty close. Okay. 
um, I, I guess I would slightly restate it is, is that there were a, um, a set of connections that was common to all the lesions that got rid of uh, addiction that was statistically different from the lesions that did not get rid of addiction. Right? So it was, they, they were characterized not by their location, but by their connectivity profile and what circuit they were hitting. I see. And can you talk about some of those um, connections and some of those circuits? What were some of the brain regions that were talking to each other that seemed to be a part of this network? Yeah. So, so as we kind of expected would come out, the insula was a major region. Um, so they were all connected to the insula. They were all connected to the anterior cingulate that I mentioned earlier, that old lesion target for addiction. Um, they were all connected to an area in the frontal cortex called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And then interestingly, these lesions were also um, negatively connected. I'll go into a minute what that means, but they were also negatively connected to another set of regions in the ventral medial prefrontal cortex and, and in the frontal polar cortex. Um, so they were positively connected to one set of regions, negatively connected to another set of regions. I see. And does that basically mean that for some of these connections, it implies that if you break them, if you lesion them, the addiction will get better. And for other connections, if you were to stimulate them, the addiction would be expected to get better. That, that's a, um, a hypothesis that, that you know, stems from our data. So we weren't able to prove that, right? I we see. didn't actually lesion any patients. We didn't actually stimulate any patients. Um, what we can say based on our data is this is the connectivity profile of a lesion that gets rid of addiction. Mm-hmm. What spot in the brain best matches this connectivity profile? Because in theory, that is the spot that you might want a lesion to get rid of addiction. Um, Conversely, we could say, if you weren't going to lesion a spot in the brain, if you're actually going to stimulate or excite a spot in the brain, what would be the ideal spot that would have the opposite connectivity profile of a lesion that would get rid of addiction? Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. And so is, is it possible for you guys to actually functionally test some of these things using DBS or using TMS or some of the other techniques that we discussed? Yeah. So I think that's the most exciting thing that came out of our paper, right? Is, is obviously we can make sense of these lesions in different locations. It was an interesting scientific study, but it directly leads to testable therapeutic targets um, where we can say, hey, if there's one spot in the brain we want to turn off, it's right there. Um, if there's one spot in the brain we want to excite, it's right there. Um, and so, again, we have to do the clinical trials. There's a lot of work to be done, but we come out with very testable hypotheses and testable therapeutic targets to find out if, if we're right or not. And um, so for the patients that went into remission where their addiction uh, symptoms got better and they lost their cravings and things, did they have, were you able to, did you have data on any other like psychological factors? Did they, did any other psychological or emotional traits um, change after they had their lesion? Yeah, good question. So we, we didn't in everybody, but we did in a subset of patients. And, and that was certainly a concern, um, especially from our reviewers of, you know, gee, you say you have a circuit for addiction, but maybe you just have a circuit for attention. Mm. And if they can no longer pay attention to what they're addicted to, maybe that's why they lost their addiction. Um, and, and so what we did is um, looked at a subset of patients where we did have extensive neuropsychological batteries done, and, and we didn't see any huge differences in attention or executive function or, or other major domains of cognitive function. The only big difference between the groups seemed to be in terms of whether they lost their addiction or not. I see. Okay. So you at least had a subset of patients where you were able to look at other 
aspects of their cognition and executive control and things. And there didn't appear to be any other glaring differences. Correct. So getting into some of the brain regions in a little bit more detail, I know that, you know, part of the paper described some interesting patterns within a couple general areas of the brain. Um, one was the striatum and one was the prefrontal cortex. So what did you find specifically and how does this align with our functional knowledge of what the different subregions of these areas are known to do? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So, um, and I'm speaking a little bit beyond my knowledge base right now because I'm not an addiction expert, um, but, but there is a a lot of focus in the addiction field, especially in the animal studies of the dorsal versus ventral striatum, um, where the ventral striatum, uh, including the nucleus accumbens, is thought to be um, you know, the limbic part of, of the basal ganglia that's very focused on reward. Mm. And so there are a lot of abnormalities, again, both in animal studies and functional imaging of addicted patients that say, hey, you know, this area of the basal ganglia that gets a lot of dopaminergic input is very, very involved in reward processing and seems to be abnormal in multiple different ways in addiction, um, where if, if you, know, you, you have a substance addiction, it tends to be underactive when you go through your normal daily life, um, where you don't find things as rewarding as maybe other people would. But then when you encounter the substance that you're addicted to, it lights up like a light bulb and, and you get this super surge of, of finding something that, that's rewarding. And yet the, the dorsal striatum, a different part, but, but right adjacent to the ventral striatum tends to work very differently. It's more involved in the, the cognition um, or control part of, of, of addiction. And so um, study after study after study sees a dissociation between what the, the ventral striatum is doing and what the dorsal striatum is doing. And so when we looked at our map, um, we saw that same dissociation in this, this addiction circuit where the connectivity profile from the ventral striatum to the dorsal striatum uh, to these lesions that got rid of addiction, uh, it, it inverted itself. The connectivity profile to the ventral striatum was exactly opposite of the connectivity profile to the dorsal striatum. Again, it's, it's a little, little bit complex, but suffice to say we were seeing signal in this area that aligned with a lot of other research on addiction from other sources. I see. I see. And so you had patients who were addicted to nicotine. You also had some patients that you had data for that were addicted to alcohol. Did the results there basically line up or were there differences between the two populations? Yeah. So, so my, minor correction is we, we actually did not have a data set of people that were addicted to alcohol at the time of their stroke. I see. Um, we, we wish we had that data set. Um, that would have been the ideal data set to test whether our findings from cigarette smoking generalized to alcohol addiction. Um, but we did have a data set that could allow us to, to broach the question where they, we didn't have people that were addicted to alcohol at the time that they had a, a lesion. Instead, we had a database of, of lesion patients uh, from Jordan Grafman. This is uh, the Vietnam Penetrating Head Trauma Study. Um, the Jordan Grafman has followed these patients that basically got shrapnel in their head in Vietnam and then he followed them for many, many decades doing a wide variety of different neuropsychological assays to understand the implications of their focal brain damage. And one of the tests that he did was an alcoholism risk score. So this is not, you know, patients that were alcoholic, but it's a battery that very tightly correlates with their risk of alcoholism. I see. Right? Um, and so it gave us a proxy, right? It wasn't the ideal data set to test if our results generalized. But it, was a lot, it allowed us to at least see, hey, if we look at the circuit that reduces your alcoholism risk, 
does that look like the circuit that led to addiction remission of cigarette smoking? I see. Okay. And, and the two lined up very, very nicely. And in fact, because Jordan Grafman had collected so much data on these Vietnam vets, we were also able to say, hey, does this line up with any other neuropsychological variables? Um, and, and it really didn't. Addiction, or sorry, the alcoholism risk score was the number one variable that looked like our addiction remission circuit. None of the other variables that he collected looked like that circuit. I see. So this is at least consistent with the idea that there could be sort of one core addiction circuit that might apply to addiction to, in theory, anything, or at least many substances, rather than distinct circuits that might be completely separate for alcohol versus nicotine versus whatever. Exactly. And I, I should mention, we also had three case reports of, you know, we, we obviously scoured the literature um, for any case reports of patients that were addicted to anything that then had a lesion. And we did identify a few case reports of patients that were addicted to other substances like opiates, um, but again, at the case report level, but those few cases we were able to find, they also lined up with this addiction remission circuit and were addicted to other substances above and beyond cigarettes, smoking, and, and alcohol. Um, and so our data at least points to the possibility that there is one circuit for addiction remission across multiple different substances of abuse. Um, and I, I will say that's actually a very controversial um, uh, finding. That was one of the ones that the reviewers really took us to task on. Um, and there's still a lot of disagreement in the addiction field as to whether, you know, addiction is one thing or addiction is something different for every different substance. I see. I see. And I suppose it doesn't have to be either or. There could be common components that are common to all addictions, but also things that are specific to opioid addiction versus alcohol versus this or that. Correct. And our, our data suggests there's at least something in common, but that doesn't preclude the possibility that there are also important differences. And so, you know, you mentioned some of these brain regions like the insula, like the striatum and some other regions that you expected to come up and see in a study like this, just based on the prior, uh, what was in the literature uh, that had been done previously. Were there any brain regions that, that were in your addiction remission, net, excuse me, addiction remission network that you were surprised to see or, or that were unexpected? Um, yes. Uh, you know, but, but in retrospect, I shouldn't have been surprised. And it was just my lack of knowledge about the addiction field and all the brain stimulation trials that have been done. So, um, I mentioned earlier that we looked for the spot that would have the ideal connectivity profile of a lesion that gets rid of addiction. And then we looked for spots that would have exactly the opposite connectivity profile that might be a target of excitatory brain stimulation. And we were really hoping that we would get something that you know, lined up with the TMS literature. And what we got was this area that we call the frontal polar cortex, kind of right behind the forehead. Um, and the first time we saw it, we kind of said, oh, nuts, it's really too bad that we didn't get a spot that, that lines up with what the TMS field um, is telling us is, is their target for addiction. I mentioned earlier that there was a, a giant TMS coil that had been designed to get the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex in the insula. And, and neither of those regions were popping out as our ideal nodes for, for excitatory TMS. And it wasn't until we actually looked at the electric fields from these TMS coils that were in use and said, okay, the coil was designed to hit the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex in the insula, but where's it actually hitting? And we were shocked because it was the frontal polar cortex. And, and so it, it you know, was a surprise to us when that brain region came out of our analysis 
Um, uh, but when we looked back at the actual electric field models of what these different TMS coils were hitting, things lined up a whole lot better than we, we ever would have thought. Interesting. Um, what is, you know, we, we've talked about deep brain stimulation and TMS. A lot of your career has been to do with things like Parkinson's disease, but then you did this collaboration about addiction. What is like the state of the art today for addiction treatment? How well does something like TMS or, or whatever works best actually work for addiction treatment in humans today? Yeah. So again, I, I should probably punt on this one um, because there are people that have dedicated their careers to this. Um, people like Colleen Hanlon, um, and uh, you know, I, I will um, mention that there there is an FDA approved TMS coil mm -hmm. um, for smoking cessation um, and smoking addiction, and there are lots of research trials going on for TMS for other types of addiction as well, um, opiate addiction, um, alcohol addiction, cocaine addiction. Um, and there's a lot of different trials, a lot of different stimulation targets, but the only one that has had the level of evidence that's led to FDA approval was this um, trial for smoking cessation. I see. So, so it is a TMS thing. So people probably go in for multiple sessions day by day for, for a period of weeks or something. They get the stimulation and it has some level of efficacy and, and the FDA has, has approved it now. Uh, correct. Um, but, but it's not yet covered by most insurance companies. And so while we run a TMS center here, um, we treat almost everybody with depression um, with our TMS simply because that is FDA approved, but also insurance reimbursed versus right now smoking cessation is FDA approved, but not covered by most insurance companies. Hmm. Um, I mean, not necessarily what I plan on talking about, but, but why is that? What, what makes something like this not coverable versus coverable? Yeah, you'll have to ask the insurance companies about that, but, but it's not it's not uncommon, right? Not okay. everything that gets FDA approved is something that's actually covered by insurance. Um, there's different calculus that goes into um, an FDA approval versus whether there's a cost benefit to the insurance company uh, to pay for that new intervention. I see. And it's, it's not uncommon that there's a lag um, between when the FDA approves something and when the insurance companies start paying. And so, for example, when TMS was FDA approved for depression, um, there was a lag of multiple years before insurance companies started paying for it. And in some areas of the country, just now our insurance companies beginning to pay for TMS for depression. I so see. different insurance companies in different regions make different decisions. And exactly what enters into that decision is uh, uh, you know, not, not something that I've been involved in directly. I see. And with TMS, I mean, TMS is, is super interesting because it is not invasive in the way that, that deep brain stimulation is. You don't actually have to cut open someone's skull and, and go inside the brain. Are there any, what, are, what does the risk profile for TMS look like? And how do you sort of calibrate how strong the signal is and, and what, the, what the frequency is? Yeah. So we, we know a huge amount about the risk profile for TMS for depression, just because you know hundreds of thousands of people have gotten TMS for depression at this point. Um, and overall, it's extremely well tolerated. Um, you know, one out of five patients will have a mild headache from the TMS. Uh, one out of five patients will have a little mild discomfort. Um, TMS kind of feels like somebody tapping you on the head, hmm. um, or it can cause very subtle muscle contractions like an eye twitch or a jaw clench. Um, but overall, um, it's very, very well tolerated. I'd say that the most concerning risk of TMS is something like a seizure, where our goal is to stimulate the brain. Um, but unlike, you know, electroconvulsive therapy, for example, where you intentionally cause a seizure with TMS, we want to stimulate the brain. 
but stop short of actually causing a seizure. And we're very good at doing that. The risk of seizure is about one out of 10,000 to one out of 30,000. So again, very rare. Um, so it's a, it's a safe procedure. It's very well tolerated. Now, again, that's TMS for depression. Mm -hmm. um, it's possible that if you switch the target and you go after a brain circuit for addiction, the side effect profile could be different. Um, but overall, TMS seems to be a pretty safe uh, treatment for a variety of different indications. Mm -hmm. Now, when we are discussing some of the brain areas involved in this addiction remission network that you've defined in your study. Um, you mentioned, for example, the insula is sort of in the brain uh, a few inches. It's not right at the surface. Does TMS work only right at the, the surface structures of the brain, or can it kind of go in and stimulate some of those deeper structures like the insula? Yeah, good, good question. So um, TMS will always maximally stimulate the part of the brain right under the TMS coil. So it's always going to be much, much better at modulating something on the surface of the brain. Now, with fancy engineering, you can design TMS coils um, to try and penetrate a little bit deeper. And in fact, that's exactly what they did with the TMS coil that's FDA approved for smoking cessation. However, even those coils that are designed to penetrate a little deeper are still stimulating something on the surface of the brain way out of proportion to anything that they're stimulating deep in the brain. I see. However, um, while the TMS coil stimulates something on the surface of the brain, that spots part of a circuit. And that stimulation doesn't stay on the surface of the brain. Anytime you modulate a brain region, the effects are going to propagate to affect the brain circuit that that region is connected to. So the best way to think about it is that, yes, TMS stimulates something on the surface of the brain, but it can still get deep based on what that brain region is connected to. I see. So when you have something like the human connectome and you know where all the connections to and from each region are going, you can be uh, careful about, you know, in your decision about where to study, uh, stimulate with TMS at the surface. And you can stimulate regions that, you know, literally reach down into the brain and go to different other areas and know that you're actually going to be hitting all of those, all of those places because of the way that circuit is, is formed. That's exactly the idea. Interesting. And so now that you guys have done this study, you've defined this addiction remission network, and you've got all these candidate locations for places where you would either inhibit activity or increase activity to potentially treat addiction. Um, what's, what's next? Are you guys looking into using TMS or other things to go in and test some of these ideas? Yeah, very much so. So your next step is obviously try and get funding. <laughs> so clinical trials are... Uh, are, are expensive. So, you know, just analyzing the location of, of brain lesions, you know, we can type on a computer uh, at, at minimal expense and do the mm -hmm. type of study that we did. But once you're starting about a major, you know, randomized controlled trial to target a brain circuit for addiction uh, remission, um, that's a big deal. And these are not easy patient populations um, to, to study. Mm -hmm. They're not easy po patient populations to treat and follow through part of a clinical trial. Um, but, but that's exactly what we're prepping for. Um, and, um, you know, one approach is like you mentioned TMS, where we have a target on the surface of the brain that we think if we excite that target, um, you know, that that would be a, a, an ideal spot, uh, for addiction remission. Um, and in fact, there's actually a, a webinar that, that I was just emailing with, um, Colleen Hanlon and a group of other investigators to get, you know, all the people in the field that, that are experts in addiction, um, on a call together to say, okay, how do we actually move this forward? Um, how do we plan this out? What's the right way to do this? And this requires um, expertise that goes beyond what, what I do. Um, I've never run a clinical trial for addiction. 
Um, but one is the, the TMS angle. We're very excited about that. Um, another one is, is people are beginning to plan out clinical trials of deep brain stimulation for addiction. And does that our circuit and the connectivity profile of our circuit inform where you might want to think about deep brain stimulation? And then there are newer technologies around the corner that might allow us to shut off a brain region. Um, you know, think of it as a temporary lesion. Hmm. Um, is there a way that we can shut it down, pilot the effects of a lesion, and see if that helps addiction? And if it does, maybe that's the next step towards a lesion-based treatment for addiction. How, how does that treatment work? Yeah, so, so right now, the, the state of the technology is, is something called focus ultrasound. Um, so, so it's um, a way to um, reach a little bit deeper into the brain than where we can go with TMS. And you can um, do things like transiently open the blood-brain barrier. So people are exploring this, for example, to deliver chemo agents to a tumor where mm. you can transiently open the blood-brain barrier around the area of the tumor and let the chemo agents go directly to the tumor rather than just saturating the entire brain. I see. Um, but, but there are ways where you might be able to um, temporarily release an anesthetic agent like propofol in a particular region of the brain and turn off a brain region. Um, and, and there's monkey trials going on right now, for example. I don't know if there are any human trials yet, um, but I know that there are human trials planned um, for this kind of um, focus ultrasound-based temporary lesioning of the brain. I see. So it sounds like th this is really the state of the art, and people are trying very hard to develop technologies that will work in humans that allow you to functionally manipulate specific areas of the brain in a reversible manner. Exactly. That would be the ideal, is if, if you can go in and, and turn on or off different um, brain areas, you know, kind of... Um, there are people that do this in, in, in rodent models with uh, technologies like optogenetics, where they can, you know, go in and, and, you know, flexibly turn on or off different brain circuits and, and have a very powerful way to control behavior, again, in mice. But this requires genetically engineering the mice and all kinds of invasive injections, things that might not be possible in humans. But, but to be able to do that, to go in and, and, you know, pilot these different therapeutic targets before you have to go in and make something like a permanent lesion, mm -hmm. where if you, if you do that and you're wrong, or if you're in the wrong spot, you could have behavioral effects that are a major problem. Uh, and so to be able to transiently pilot the effect of a lesion, that would be a major step forward. And there's a lot of people looking at developing technologies that will allow us to do something like that. Mm -hmm. So th this study was interesting for the reason, um, you know, also for the reason that, you know, you're, you said you were a neurologist and you specialize in things like Parkinson's and depression. You also had addiction experts on the study and you had people from, you know, different institutions. So it was a, a pretty major collaboration. How did this whole thing even come together? <laughs> bit, bit by bit. Cause uh, I, I want to say all in, you know, all told, um, it's like, uh, Dr. Yutsa, uh, or sorry, Yotsa, Yotsa, uh, Yuho Yotsa. Uh, about six years um, to, to pull all these different data sets and analyses together. Um, but, but you notice that we had three co-first authors, right? Mm -hmm. So Dr. Yotza is a neurologist. Dr. Siddiqui is a psychiatrist. Dr. Musawi is a neurologist, but then also was doing a specialized training in addiction. Um, and then uh, on the paper itself, we had addiction experts, brain connectivity experts, lesion experts, psychiatrists, neurologists. It really was a a multidisciplinary effort. And I don't think the paper could have happened without any of those collaborators or any of those pieces. Um, it was just too many different things that had to be brought together um, to go ahead and, and find out 
um, or, or test the hypotheses that we had. Interesting. Um, I would love to ask you a little bit about treatment-resistant depression stuff, just because I know that a lot of people have interest in that area, and it's um, there's been a lot of progress made, I think, in recent years in different ways. So can you just start out with some of the basics there? What is treatment-resistant depression, and what would you say the... Why don't we start with like... Since you specialize in this, I've heard many different people articulate many different things about this area. Um, people have strong opinions. How effective, what are the standard treatments and how effective are they today? Let's start there. Yeah. So, so again, full disclosure, I'm a Parkinson's doc. <laughs> oh, okay. I thought you said um, Parkinson's but, and treatment resistant depression. But, 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 but yeah, so, so, but I, I do um, uh, evaluate all of our patients that come into the TMS clinic here from a neurological standpoint for depression. And so, you know, first line uh, treatment for depression is always medication mm-hmm. um, or psychotherapy. And a lot of patients will get better with that medication or that psychotherapy. Um, however, if that doesn't work, you then move to oftentimes medication number two, and then medication number three, and then medication number four. But, but once you've tried a few medications and failed a few medications, that's when we start using the term treatment-resistant depression. And your chance of getting better to medication number four, once you've already failed three medications, that starts going way down. In fact, you get, in, you get into the single digits at that point. Um, and that's motivated people to start exploring alternative neuromodulation treatments for depression. Again, these different tools that we've been discussing that allow us to go and directly intervene on the brain circuit we think is responsible for depression. Um, and so TMS is one of those tools. DBS is one of those tools. Even lesioning can be one of those tools. So when they actually lesion the brain for therapeutic reasons, how do they actually accomplish that? Yeah. So they, um, it's a surge. Well, two technologies, right? The, the traditional way is it's a surgery, um, kind of like the DBS electrode that I described earlier, where you put a small electrode into the head, um, but you use that electrode to actually burn a hole. Um, and then you pull the electrode back out again, and now you have a small lesion. And, um, that was actually the treatment that we used for decades for tremor and for Parkinson's disease before they realized that they could put the electrode in turn the electrode on and the tremor would stop without actually having to burn the hole. Um, that's actually where DBS came from. Um, and so lesions are older than DBS. It's the original form of neuromodulation before we had DBS and before we had TMS, um, people would go in and create these lesions. Um, and then there's obviously a, a very long history of lesion based therapies for psychiatric disease, um, a history that, that some people would um, prefer to forget or, better learn the lessons of the past to make sure we don't make the same mistakes in the future. Because some of these lesion-induced therapies for psychiatric disorders, including bad depression, um, were very debilitating, um, things like frontal lobotomies. Um, But there are also much more focal lesion-based treatments for psychiatric disease um, that didn't have the same level of side effects and comorbidity. I see. I see. And when we think about, you know, one thing that occurs to me that's kind of interesting is if your specialty is in Parkinson's, I, I know from, from school that Parkinson's involves the death of dopamine neurons in the brain, but you know addiction is also famously connected to the neuromodulator dopamine. Is there any um, overlap in the symptoms between someone with Parkinson's and someone with a severe addiction because it involves these dopaminergic neurons? Um, 
So, so, sort of. So, so um, the medications that we use to treat Parkinson's disease are dopaminergic medications. And so some of the medications that, that you can give patients um, can lead to um, things that look like addictive behavior. So um, people can get something called dopamine dysregulation syndrome, which mm. is sort of like a form of addiction where they want more and more dopamine. Right. I see. Um, they can also get things like uh, with certain um, medications, again, a rare side effect, but patients have developed gambling trouble um, with these, these dopamine meds. And so it's, it's not that Parkinson's and addiction as syndromes look the same. It's almost that they're the opposite, but some of the medications that we use to treat Parkinson's can um, give you syndromes that can look a little bit like addiction. I see. And those medications are basically boosting activity and dopamine circuits. Exactly. I see. I see. So there, there is a relationship. And, you know, with, you know, with the, the state of the art today for treatment of Parkinson's, is it, is it currently more of a symptom management thing or can people get most of their quality of life back when they do something like DBS or take some of these medications? Um, so both. Um, in the sense that it is a symptom management thing. And I, I think um, it's important, uh, you know, that people know when, when you start hearing about these exciting brain circuit treatments and neuromodulation, that, that we're still treating the symptoms of the disorder. So we're not stopping the disease process. Mm-hmm. Um, that's going to keep on going at the same rate. All of our treatments are targeting the symptoms. Now, there's a lot of research going into stopping the disease or finding a quote unquote cure for the disease. Um, but with neuromodulation, for the most part, what we're finding is a very effective treatment for the symptoms of the disease. Now, if we're very good at treating the symptoms, right, that can let people have a wonderful quality of life and, and, and live a great quality of life because the symptoms are well controlled, even though we haven't cured the disease. Mm-hmm. And what's our current understanding of the cause of Parkinson's disease? Do we know why some of these neurons actually start to die? Uh, short answer is no. You know, there, there's certain things that can increase the risk of Parkinson's disease, but lots of people have those same risk factors and don't get Parkinson's disease. Um, there are genetic factors that can make it a little bit more likely, but most people don't have those genes. And so the, the short answer is no, we don't know what causes Parkinson's disease, just like we don't know what causes depression or what predisposes someone to addiction. I see. I see. Yeah. So it's still very mysterious. The brain is complex. So it's, it's really hard. What, um, how long does it take for Parkinson's to normally start to manifest? Like, is it something that happens quickly? Like, like some of these cells are dying and, and you notice right away, or is it more of a slow progression? It's only when someone's relatively well into the disease state that you actually notice the symptoms and start treating them. Yeah. So very much the latter. Um, so, you know, we, we think that the, the dopamine neurons, for example, start to disappear many, many decades before patients will actually get diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. Wow. And what's, um, you know, how, so you're an MD PhD, so you're, you're a medical doctor and you're a scientist doing research. How much of your time do you spend doing the research side versus seeing patients and things like that? Yeah. So about 80% research, 20% clinical. Okay. And what are, um, what are some of the, you know, things that you're, you're working on today that, um, haven't been published yet? What are some of the questions that you're aiming for? <laughs> um, I'm going to leave that to the first authors to, uh, to disclose. Okay. Okay. 
Um, I, well, I don't want to, I, I, you know, I've got a lot of fellows working on very, very exciting projects. Um, some of which are under review at, at high profile journals and I don't want to, um, let the cat out of the bag prematurely, but, but I, I would say that, um, that the same platform that we use to study the lesions that get rid of addiction, mm-hmm. um, can be used to study a variety of other neurological or psychiatric symptoms. And so, you know, we've published on probably 20 or 30 of those including things that you would think you couldn't study using, you know, neuroscience techniques, things like religion or free will, Hmm. um, but then also neurological and psychiatric diseases. Um, And and I think there's one thing that we've learned, which is um, the brain works in terms of circuits. And so lesions causing the same symptom pretty much never hit the same brain region, but they almost always hit the same brain circuit. Um, Two is that there's really no fundamental difference between a neurological problem and a psychiatric problem. Mm. We can use exactly the same approach of lesions that cause that symptom to study either disease and we can map it onto a brain circuit. Um, And then three is is more and more we're seeing that that this approach is lining up with what we know about effective therapeutic targets. And we just got to take the next step to say, okay, can we improve that target based on this lesion-based localization? Excellent. Well, I think that's not a bad place to leave it. So Dr. Michael Fox, thank you once again for joining me and and sharing your knowledge with us. Um, I saw that study not that long ago, and I wanted to talk with someone who was on the paper you know, soon, soon after it came out. So thank you for getting back to me so soon. And if people want to check it out, can you just mention which journal it's published in and maybe what the title is? Uh, yeah, let me, uh, Nature Medicine, and then let me actually uh, Google it to make sure I get the exact title through all the revisions, we uh, went through a fair number of. <laughs> all right, all right. So there's a uh, brain lesion disrupt brain lesions disrupting addiction mapped to a common human brain circuit. Again, the first authors are uh, Dr. Yotsa, Musawi, and Siddiqui, and that was published in Nature Medicine. Yeah. So it was a really interesting paper. Um, I'll put a link to it in the episode description if anyone listening wants to check it out and and get a sense for what the data actually looks like. But Michael Fox, thank you again for your time. And I look forward to talking to you again in the future. Yeah. Thank you so much for your interest, Nick. It was a pleasure. 